0: Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusson from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Yay, and happy Saturday to everyone. Welcome to All the Things. And this is a show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom, and Monique is speaking tonight at the Coulson Center event in Austin, Texas. So I have asked our friend, Elisa Childers, to sit in. And help me co-host the show. Welcome,
1: Alisa. Yay, thank you. (laughs) This is so fun. I've wanted to interview Nancy Piercy for a long time. So this is going to be super fun. So I'm sad Monique can't be here, but I'm kind of selfishly glad that it worked (laughs) out. Yeah, and we are streaming tonight both on the All
0: The Things channel as well as Alisa Childers' YouTube channel. And then our normal All The Things streams over on Facebook. So please do Join in the live chat, um, and if you have questions for Nancy that are relevant, interesting, (laughs) and respectful, we might include them. Um, If you are off-topic, crazy, and the like, we will probably not uh, integrate your question. Uh, And I want to say, give a shout-out to our moderators for tonight, Lisa Fox and Jennifer Bytel, uh, helping us out on all the things. And, at least and I, on, my
1: channel, on my YouTube channel, David Welcott and Amy Burks are moderating. So thank you so much to those guys for helping out. Definitely. And helping us out tonight and every day,
0: and every night uh, for all the media, for um, us and other ministries is Bob Bontrager. There he is quickly working behind the scenes to make sure we are streaming in all the platforms. <laughs> we are very grateful for your service. Um, so we want to let you know that, um, we're excited to, to bring this interview with Nancy Piercy, uh, to you and, uh, just kind of a a neat, uh, situation of co platforms sort of partnering together. Uh, maybe we should start off, Elisa, with what's been happening with you. What are you up to?
1: Wow. Well, I got a lot going on right now. I actually just turned in the manuscript for my next book, and I'm really excited about it. It's called Live Your Truth and Other Lies. And then the subtitle is How Popular Deceptions Are Making Us Anxious, self-obsessed and exhausted. So I'm really excited to jump into the editing on that. And I hope that it's really helpful for a lot of people. And then the other thing I've been working on is there is a curriculum, a small group church study curriculum coming for my first book, Another Gospel. So we're going to be recording some videos for that in November. And the written part is already done. So that'll be coming, I believe, I think it's summer maybe, but that'll be coming out for churches to be able to kind of utilize the book, Another Gospel, and walk through it. And hopefully that will be really helpful. But but Krista, you know, aside from what's going on with me, I think there's bigger things happening in the world. And one of those things is the fierce showing Monique made on Facebook today in that hat that she had on at the coffee shop. I was uh, I was just like, oh, my, look at that. Yeah, we sent her to
0: Texas. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, Her and Carrie Smith from the Unsafe Space podcast got together and went to have uh, Thai food or Vietnamese food or something last night. Had a good time together because I won't go to those places with her. Uh, oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't care for that kind of food. So it was good. I'm glad she was there.
1: I was glad they were able to connect there in Austin.
0: So they yeah. had a good good time together.
1: Good deal. Yeah, but I mean, like, I guess when you're in Texas, you got you to gotta do the hat. But just, you know, I was just so impressed. I was like, that is, that's how you wear a hat. <laughs> that's I right. That's how well, you do it.
0: You know, it really is the Monique effect because she just has a way with people, doesn't she? Uh, today, she was chumming it up with Carl Truman. And I get this picture. He isn't like, I don't know what kind of pants those are that he's got on. But those are academic pants. Those are very, you got to be really smart to carry off those pants. But then he's
1: giving her bunny ears. I know. I mean, it's just like, like like hashtag life goals, you know, <laughs> like to have such a smart person Photo bomb me with bunny ears is like that's a life goal for me. That's <laughs> it's the Monique effect. It I don't is. know how she does it, but she does it.
0: So she is having a great time
1: down in Austin. So and
0: we are going to have a great time tonight with Nancy Piercey, the one and only um, author of the book "Love Thy Body," and uh, it's a book that uh, is just still so relevant, even though it's been. Out a couple of years, uh, what she has put together in this book is still so relevant and increasingly
1: so. So I am looking forward to this conversation tonight. Yeah, I am too. And I have to say something about this book because there are only a select few books that I will buy on all three platforms on Kindle, hard copy and Audible and this is one of those books that's that important. I bought it on all three of those platforms that I can cross-reference. If I'm out you know, walking or running, I can listen. Uh, I can have my highlights saved on my Kindle. And, of course, if I want to thumb through my hard copy, I can. So just highly recommended book. I, when I first read this book, I was so impressed with it. It's just I remember thinking this is an absolute takedown of uh, the pro-abortion arguments that we hear and and it also with gender and, and i know we're going to talk about a lot of that tonight but just highly recommend this book to anybody watching us tonight who you want to sharpen your apologetic when it comes to these issues this is the book you want to get
0: yes i i completely agree and you know we're we're living in this weird cultural moment now where people are shouting their abortions changing their pronouns and many of us are asking How in the world did we get here? And I'm looking forward to this conversation with Nancy Piercy to help us kind of unravel why our culture thinks that these approaches are rational. And um, I think it's going to be a great conversation. So let's get her on here. And I want to say welcome to Nancy Piercy. We're going to
1: the anticipation.
0: It is the anticipation. It's all good. (coughs) Bob's trying to juggle the Zoom account. There she is. All right. And just do a quick mic check. uh, If we can hear you, Nancy, are you unmuted and everything? Great. Yes, Yes. Testing, testing. Yes, we are good. All right. So for the the two people who are watching (laughs) who don't know who you are, Nancy, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the book Love Thy Body.
2: Oh, well, I teach at Houston Baptist University. I teach apologetics and I'm a scholar in residence, um, which means I get time on the job to write books, <laughs> which is wonderful. Um, and the reason I wrote the book <laughs> is that these issues are just so cutting edge. And I'll bet everybody who's here tonight has some friend, some family member some person close to them um, the book i love my body has a lot of personal stories um, because they're personal most of them are put in as pseudonyms you know they're put in with fake names so you may not know when you read the book <laughs> that they're actually uh, very personal stories but just like myself i find more and more people are having to deal with issues like abor- abortion homosexuality transgenderism euthanasia Everyone now is dealing with these issues personally. In the past, you could have treated them as just sort of abstract, like, uh, apologetic issues, right? You could say, "Okay, okay, as Christians, we need to have an answer to this issue." No, no. Nowadays, you have to personally know how to deal with individuals in your life who are actually working through these uh, issues, you know, on a very personal level. So it, it makes the approach much different. And I think you know, a lot of people say. Um, that's what's different about lovely bodies, but it's very obvious. I've really talked with real people who are struggling with these issues. Uh, so it's, it, it makes a big difference when you've talked to and struggled alongside somebody who's worked with this for many, many years. So that's kind of how I got into it. Is I, I, just, I couldn't avoid it in my personal life.
1: Nancy, I I think that's such a great point to bring out, because all of us know someone who is dealing with some of these issues on one level or another, and they're deeply personal. These are things that uh, really hit people in the deepest parts of our souls, I think, is issues of gender and abortion and and sexuality and some of these things. And you discuss a number of these issues in your book um, that might seem unrelated, things like transgender issues, abortion, even cremation, the afterlife. What do you see as the thread that binds all these ideas together? How, how do these all make sense in the same context?
2: Yeah, I, I appreciate you asking that, because that is another thing that's really unique about the book is that in Love Thy Body, I show that there's a common philosophical thread or a common worldview thread that connects them all. They, you Chancellor know, Schaefer used to say one of the reasons that Christians are so ineffective is that they kind of approach each issue in bits and pieces. That was his word, bits and pieces. Uh, instead of understanding that there's a common underlying worldview. But let me illustrate by just starting with the cutting-edge issue of our day, which is transgenderism, because that's also where it's easiest to see. The underlying worldview for all of these issues turns out to be a divide between our body and who we feel we are as a person. So transgenderism is very evident because transgender activists themselves explicitly say your gender identity has nothing to do with your biological sex. You know, the kids, kids down to kindergarten are being taught you just because you have boy parts doesn't mean you're a boy. Just because you have girl parts doesn't mean you're a girl. And so there's this this alienation from the body that is being taught all the way down to to kindergarten. In fact, there was a a news article not long ago. uh, It was a first grader, a little girl who came home from school and said, Mom, my my teacher said just because I have girl parts doesn't mean I'm a girl. And she was very distressed because she's, you know, so what am I? And she, she literally said to her mother, please take me to a doctor so we can find out what I am. And the, uh, the reason it was in the news is that the, the uh, parents were suing the school board for emotional distress. But the point is that the, the worldview then that's being taught to, to very young children even is that there's, your body is not part of your authentic self. You know, your body, uh, and the BBC had a, a document not a documentary, um, it was kind of like a teen video. And it showed a young girl who identified as non-binary. And she said, your body is just a meat skeleton, a meat skeleton. Um, and it, you don't take your identity from your body, you take your identity from your feelings. So the body has been denigrated to just a meat skeleton that tells you nothing about who you are, that gives you no clue to your identity, that gives you no moral guidelines, um, and that um, has no intrinsic purpose that you are morally obligated to, to respect. So that is the underlying view. Surprisingly enough, because we, the stereotype is that Christians have a low view of this world and of the body, right? because it's the spirit that counts. And it's the spiritual realm that counts, not the earthly realm. So for a long time, people thought it's Christianity that denigrates the physical, material world. Uh, One of my students put it this way. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. But it turns out that in comparison with the secular worldviews that are dominant today, it's actually the Christian worldview that uh, promotes a very high view of the body that says, you are supposed to respect your body. You are supposed to honor your body. When it comes to questions like transgenderism, you are supposed to have a harmony between your feelings and your physical self. You are meant to honor your biological sex. You are meant to respect your body. You're, you are meant to live in harmony with who God created you to be. So it turns out that the, 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 uh, the nature of the debate has actually, you know, the, the tables have been turned And so now it's Christians who are defending a high view of the body over against a secular worldview that says your body doesn't matter. has no particular meaning or, or significance. And why should you pay any attention to it anyway?
0: That's really helpful. I think, you know, just to tease that out a little bit more that separation between the physical body and what we might call the immaterial part of us, the, our mind, our will, and our emotions our spiritual life. Um, you've kind of illustrated how that works out in transgender issues. How do you see that dynamic playing out in the abortion debate?
2: Right. Actually, that's when, that's where people first noticed it. Um, secular bioethicists say, well, first of all, they do acknowledge that the fetus is human. Not everybody knows that, but among professional secular bioethicists, they all agree that life begins at conception. Uh, the, the evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. Read any embryology textbook. So the question then is how do they get around that to support abortion? Well, what they say is the fetus is biologically human, physiologically, chromosomally, you know, genetically human, but it's not a person until sometime later. With personhood defined usually in some form of uh, cognitive abilities, some sort of self-awareness, um, and um, you know the ability to make choices, the ability to think about the future. There's all kinds of ways that, that bioethicists try to define it, but it has something to do with your mental abilities. And uh, so, what the bio—I mean, it started with Roe v. Wade in the 1973 Supreme Court abortion decision. He said point blank, the fetus is human from conception, but it's not a person until sometime later. So the Supreme Court was giving expression to this divided view that you can be human at one point and yet not be a person until sometime later. So clearly these are two different things. So that's where that dualism, that divide, that dichotomy between body and person first was first noticed, that secular uh, bioethicists had adopted this divided, fragmented view of the human person. So essentially what secular bioethics are saying today is that being human is not enough for human rights because the fetus can be human and, and not have any rights. Being human is not enough to have any moral status. It's not enough to warrant legal protection. So being human is no longer the basis for human rights. You don't, you have to earn the right to life by becoming a person, by acquiring certain mental abilities, cognitive functioning and so on. And so the split between body and person is right there in uh, in the abortion issue as well. Essentially, uh, the the pro-abortion view is based on the notion, you can be a human at one point, but you don't become a person until sometime later and rights don't kick in until the state decides you're a person uh, and not just because you're a human. I, I have to. I have to try to tell them when I speak to audiences. I try to tell them. I try to help them see how momentous this really is. I say, you think, you think you have rights because you just because you're a human being. You know that is the traditional notion of human rights, or really the Christian notion, because it's built into the Declaration of Independence. Right? Well, uh, we hold these, these to be these uh, this to be uh, self-evident. These truths to be self-evident. Uh, that you have certain inalienable rights because you of the image of the creator. Well, that's no longer true. You do not have the inalienable right to life anymore just because you're human, just because you're a member of the human race. Roe v. Wade destroyed that. It said, no, you do not have human rights just because you're human. And the logic of that then is anyone else who's human does not have human rights just on the basis of being human. They have human rights only if the state decides they qualify as a person. So this has really quite wide-ranging implications.
1: Nancy, when I read your book, um, one of the things that really jumped out to me was a a thread that I had been thinking about all the way back from when I read St. Augustine's Confessions, and he was talking about his time with the Manichaeans, and I didn't really at the time understand what they were all about until I read Peter Brown's uh, biography of Augustine, and he explained a little more about Manichaeans and uh, just how that's kind of related to some of that early Gnosticism. I wonder if you could maybe comment on that because when I'm hearing what you're saying, um, you know, of course, Gnosticism was very broad and diverse, and there was a lot of uh, beliefs that fell under those different umbrellas, there were different sects and all of that. But um, maybe you could comment on do you think that some of that Gnostic thought has influenced where our secular culture? is today when it comes to this division between personhood and, and body? Well, certainly it's very similar.
2: Certainly it's parallel. I don't know if you can trace an exact historical connection, but it's um, it should encourage us that the Christian church has faced the same thing before. Uh, the early church faced a culture, that uh, an ancient Greek and Roman culture, that also devalued the physical world, the physical body. And not just Manichaeanism and Gnosticism, also Neoplatonism. Plato said the body is the prison of the soul. And so the goal of salvation was to escape from the physical realm and to reascend the higher levels um, and reunite with the mystic one, the one, as in Eastern thought. Um, so the early church faced... Um, The same notion that the body has no particular value or dignity. In fact, the Gnosticism actually taught it was a lower-level deity, an evil god. Gnosticism taught that there were several levels of spiritual beings, and it was the lowest level who was an evil god who created this world. Because after all, no self-respecting god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. So, Christianity in this context was nothing short of revolutionary. Because it taught, first of all, that creation, creation was not by an evil god, it was by the supreme god, who was a good god, and therefore creation is intrinsically good. And even though we accept the idea of the fall, it does not totally negate its original goodness. It's kind of like when a child defaces a a great masterpiece, artistic masterpiece. You can still see the beauty of the original masterpiece coming through. But the greatest scandal in the ancient world was the incarnation, because that was the idea that that same supreme deity had actually entered into the physical world and taken on a physical body so that the incarnation was the ultimate validation of the dignity of the human body. And then when you might say Jesus did escape the physical realm, as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do when he was executed on a Roman cross, but what did he do then? He came back in a physical body to the ancient Greeks. This was not spiritual progress. What they, their response to the to the resurrection was? Who would want to come back to the realm of the body? As Paul puts it, the, the idea of the physical resurrection was utter foolishness to the Greeks. That's how he puts it in. in uh, course, at the end of time, you know, Christians, even Christians tend to think, end of time, you know, we're, we're floating around in an immaterial spiritual realm. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that God is going to recreate, you know, a, a new heavens and a new earth, and we will be on that new earth in physical bodies. All the way back to the beginning, the Apostles' Creed is affirmed the resurrection of the body. So this I, I try to tell people, like when I have a, a speak to audiences, I try to get, get them to understand the treasure that we have here. This is an extraordinarily high view of the physical realm. There was no other religion or philosophy that has such a high view of the value and significance of the material realm. Nothing like it anywhere. We should be so excited that when we talk to people, we're just overflowing with the, the joy, of having such a wonderful message to give them. Francis Schaefer used to say, the, the, um, the biblical worldview doesn't start with Jesus died for your sins. It starts with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth because the creation itself tells us of the beauty and dignity of this world. And, and so we need to start with that as our, our message.
0: I think just as a clarification, I, th- I think it's so powerful. and I don't want it to pass people buy of the historic Christian position as being very affirming of the physical body, being affirming of an integrated uh, human person, body, soul, and spirit. Um, I don't know, like you said, if we have a deep enough appreciation for that position. And sometimes we inadvertently buy into this, bifurcation between the physical body and the what our, our culture calls like the most authentic part of ourself is our emotions and and how we feel about things um maybe we could talk a little bit more about how you see that playing out and then i want to get into you know the redeeming message of historic christianity and how it answers some of these questions about transgenderism
2: so let's, let's shift maybe to homosexuality and use that as our next yeah. example, because that's, it's the same thing. It's just, um, like Elisa said at the beginning, it's a common worldview connecting all of them. Let me put it this way. Even when I talk to my homosexual friends, they will agree that on the level of biology, physiology, chromosomes, anatomy, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity, therefore, is to implicitly contradict that design. It's to say, why should my body have any say in my identity? Why should my body inform my moral choices? Why should my biological sex have have any say in who I am, in my, my authentic identity? And what we have to help people to see is that's a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. Essentially, it's saying that my body has nothing to do with who I am. You know, it's, not, it's, it's very close to the transgender idea in that, um, it, you, you know, you're not gonna go into surgery and chop off body parts, but you are still saying that my body has nothing to do with who I am. Let me give you an example, um, because she, uh, there's, there's a, a well-known public intellectual who expresses this so well. Uh, her name is Camille Paglia. You, you all may know her. Yes. Yeah. Elisa's is nodding. A lot of Christians read her work, even though she's a lesbian. By the way, Elisa, did you know, she's now claiming to be trans for many years? She was, a uh,
1: I I did like not a, know. That
2: yeah. Yeah. She definitely does now, but for many years, she claimed to be lesbian either way. Um, if, but she's interesting because, uh, she's a little bit of an, an uh, iconoclastic feminist because, She does not accept that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, 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 nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. So you say to her, well, then how do you justify being a lesbian or now trans? And these are her exact words. Okay, so nature made us male and female, but then she says, quote, why not defy nature? Why not defy nature? And then she goes on to say, quote, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So do you see the logic there? The logic is that if our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose that we're morally obligated to respect. They give us no clue to our identity they give us no roadmap to our morality. We may do with them as we see fit. So really it comes down to your view of nature. You know, your, body is, your body is part of nature. And so it turns out that your ethic ultimately depends on your view of nature. So Camille Pagli is saying if the body is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, you know, then then they have nothing to say to us in terms of my, our morality. Whereas a Christian worldview says, wait, wait a minute, nature itself exhibits a plan, a design, an order, a purpose. Science tells us now a very simple level, eyes are made for seeing, ears are made for hearing, fins are made for swimming, and wings are made for flying. And the uh, total development of the organism is directed by an inbuilt, inbuilt plan or blueprint. So science itself tells us that, that nature is built according to a design. And so what Christians are saying is that when we live in accord with that design, we will be happier and healthier. And I'll, I'll give you um, just an anecdote. There's a, the, the book Lovely Body is full of anecdotes, by the way. People are considering reading it. It's not just moral arguments. There are lots and lots of stories. And one of my favorite ones is I uh, Woman who lived as a lesbian for many years, and uh, and today is married, married to a man. You have to say that now, married to a man, and has two two children. She, she wrote an article on how she changed, and she said, um, "I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason, and I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design." And I thought, what beautiful language. That's what we need to learn how to do. When people say, you know, tell me what to do practically, I always say, just start with changing your language. Start talking about honoring your body, living in accord with the creator's design, respecting our biological sex as God's handiwork. So that's where, um, you know, Krista, you started talking about, you know, where's the redemptive part? That's where we start talking about the redemptive side of it, is recovering the high value and dignity, receiving our bodies as good gifts from God.
1: And it seems like, you know, you mentioned Camille Paglia, It's, it's like to even say you're transitioning from female to male you would have to have some sort of objective standard by which to say, this is female, this is male. I'm moving from one to the other. And in your book, you write this, you say, to protect women's rights, we must be able to say what a woman is. If postmodernism is correct, that the body itself is a social st- construct, then it becomes impossible to argue for rights based on the sheer fact of being female. We cannot legally protect a category of people if we cannot identify that category. And I think we're seeing even from the from some secular feminists like J.K. Rowling and some of these people that are pushing back uh, against some of this postmodern uh, push when it comes to gender. And I wonder if you might comment a bit on how postmodernism really. Um, sort of defines and underlies some of this secular morality that we're seeing, where all of these categories seem to be blended, and it's like on one sense, we're saying, no, there's no objective uh, standard to say this is the female sex and this is the male, but yet at the same time, we're going to say we can move from one to the other. I wonder if you could comment on that.
2: Yeah, I mean, you absolutely put your finger on an internal contradiction. That uh, I think it's a fatal internal contradiction. But I often talk about this in terms of finding allies. Um, One of the things that uh, people say, what do we do, what do we do? Practically, what do we do? And one of my answers is find allies. And right now, some of our best allies are radical feminists who are recognizing what you just read there, that you cannot protect women's rights if you cannot define what a woman is. If anybody with any anatomy can claim to be a woman, then the term has no no meaning. And you truly cannot defend women's rights if you cannot define what a woman is. And so I actually belong to a group. Um, it's, it, you can find it on Facebook. Uh, I'm on the private version of it, but there's a public version as well. It's called Hands Across the Aisle. And it's, <laughs> it's a group of very conservative Christian women and very leftist, feminist, socialist, many lesbian uh, women who are uh, very concerned about the transgender movement. So um, these are the women who are called TERFs. Have you heard that term, T-E-R-F, TERFs? Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. It's it's intended as a slur. So feminists who do not accept the transgender movement are are slurred as TERFs. So these are TERFs. (laughs) And what we do is we get together and uh, and and we support one another. Uh, we we have written position papers together. We've co-authored op-ed pieces together. Um, you know we've we've spoken at uh, hearings at the state and national level, and so on. Um, and it's it's fascinating to see how Christians and feminists have come together on this issue. And on the side of the radical feminists. Um, they're in shock because the only place they, that they can get published these days is in Christian publications. Many of them are leaders of feminist movements who've been leaders for many years who've, who are well known in the in feminist movements, who are well known you know, in, in feminist publications. and now they can't get their work published anymore because they've come out against the transgender movement and saying that you know it's going to destroy the feminist movement. And so and so they're play, they're publishing in places like the Christian Post which I think is wonderful and public discourse and the Federalist and these other sort of Christian leaning places um, places like the Federalist and explicitly Christian like the Christian post but they're Christian leaning. Um, so all of a, all of a sudden you know they're like they sometimes get criticized by their Christian by their fellow feminists like why are you publishing in these Christian conservative places and they have to say they're the only places that will take our work anymore. So this has been wonderful that we've been able to build bridges with very radical uh, feminists on this issue. So I often raise it not only in terms of, like you said, um, you know, it, it's a good it's a good form of critiquing uh, transgenderism because it is self contradictory. But also, take it a step further, go out and make allies of people that you might not have ever thought of allies before, because femi- we are making a lot of allies with the radical feminists these days. And it's, it's wonderful to see these two movements coming together.
0: I'm thinking about um, kind of a little bit about my own life. Um, I am probably, I don't know. The, <laughs> I, I just am a tomboy who never outgrew it. And, you know, I think that I saw an article, I've seen a couple of articles recently of how this, This idea of the trans movement is actually wiping out people like me, you know, that because we can't really define what a woman is. People like me, where there's a comment on Elisa's stream, she says uh, from a woman, she says, I play women's rugby and homosexuality is a huge part of that culture. I'm often asked by my teammates if, you know, I'm a lesbian and, and I've gone through that that reality. And it's like, no, I'm happily married. I've been married for 28 years. I have two children. Um, you know, I'm living the dream, but I enjoy sports and have enjoy being athletic. But now it seems like the, so much of the messaging is, you know, when I was growing up, I, there was no part of me that ever doubted that I was a woman and that I would probably grow up one day and get married and have children. Um, but now the messaging is is like well if you like certain things then you know you're you're probably misgendered you're probably need to be a boy and it 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 does erase kind of people like me who are just a little different but i never doubted that that i was a woman and so this whole postmodern kind of Con- construct of gender. It, I can see how if I was a child growing up right now, that I could easily fall into that. But there was, when I was growing up and I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm older, quite a bit older than Alisa. but you know, when I was growing up, there was still the strong messaging of, even if I was a tomboy, I was still a girl. I wasn't a defective boy. Well, it's
2: actually gone a step further than that. Now, Parents are reporting that even their gay and lesbian kids are under pressure from transgender activists that that's not good enough that they have to be trans. There's a uh, I follow some of the websites that are started by uh, parents of transgender kids. Uh, The one I like the best is uh, Fourth Wave Now. Fourth Wave Now, and it's uh, parents whose kids came out as trans and who you know band together to give each other moral support and practical support. Um, anyway, they have sometimes used the phrase gay genocide. There's a gay genocide by which they mean that, you know, they're, they're very, this is a very secular liberal website, so they're fine with their kids being gay. They just don't want them to go trans because transgenderism is such an extremely uh, large step from that in the sense of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, surgeries, not just one surgery, but, you know, the multiple surgeries. Um, so they they are against their kids going that going to the trans um, identifying as trans. Um, but what they say is our beautiful gay kids are being are being pressured by trans activists who say you're not going far enough. That if you have if you are if you come out as a lesbian because you're some, somewhat more masculine, uh, they're being bullied and pressured to admit no, no, you're not just gay, you are really trans. And you, know, you should be courageous enough to come out and admit it. And so there are fewer and fewer kids today who are identifying as homosexual because as soon as you come out as homosexual, you're pressured to go further and identify as trans. So the pressure has changed even since you were young. Now, uh, remember, keep in mind that word, gay genocide. These parents are complaining that their kids are being bullied if they, if they come out as attracted to the same sex, and that's not enough. But let let me give you, um, uh, just to give you a practical uh, story, um, I do tell a story in Love Thy Body of a, of a young boy who had gender dysphoria. There's two kinds of gender dysphoria, and we can talk about both if you want, but the, traditionally gender dysphoria has, has, uh, has appeared at a very young age. You know, true gender dysphoria has appeared at a very young age. Today, we have a, you know, an epidemic of young girls who are dis- discovering that they're trans that are, uh, when they're teenagers. But I, um, I, but I tell the story of a young boy who, who had classic gender dysphoria, and I, I called him Brandon. Um, and before he was even walking, it was very evident that he didn't fit boy stereotypes. You know, his, his babysitter said to his mom, He's too good to be a boy, by which she meant, you know, he was quiet and compliant and gentle on the things that we typically associate with girls. When he was in preschool, every day when his mother picked him up, he was playing with the little girls and not the little boys. Already in elementary school, he was coming to his parents in tears, repeatedly, and saying, you know, I I don't fit in with the boys. I think wait, his exact words, if I can remember With I think like a girl, I, I think the way girls do, I feel the way girls do. God should have made me a girl. By age of 14, he was scouring the internet for information on sex change surgery. So what did his parents do? First of all, they made a point of letting him know that they loved him just the way he was. I think uh, parents often try to pressure their children to be different. When I was in seminary, I had a friend who was a former homosexual and he said, my, <laughs> I liked music and art. And my dad was baffled and tried to pressure me into more traditional male activities like sports. And Brandon's parents didn't do that. They told them it's perfectly okay for you to be an emotional, sensitive, relational, Boy, it does not mean that you're really a girl. They, um, they took him through the gifts of the spirit. You know, in the gifts of the spirit, prophecy and teaching are not masculine, as you and I might think. Mercy and service are not feminine, as we might think. The, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit gives them to individuals as he chooses Uh, His parents even took him through uh, personality details like the Myers-Briggs to show him it's okay. You know, the the full spectrum of of personalities is open to you. You can be at this far spectrum or you can be at that far spectrum and still be a girl, uh, still be a boy. And equally, of course, a girl can be at this end of the spectrum or that end and still be a girl. A girl can be sort of take charge, assertive, um, and, and, and that's perfectly fine. So the, the upshot is that, um, oh, and I should say, gender dysphoria is very uh, intractable. It took a long time. Uh, it wasn't really until his early 20s that Brandon fully accepted his identity as a boy. Here's what he said. He said, even surgery wouldn't give me what I want. It would not make me a girl, which is true. There's a, fam- there's a very famous TED talk um, called his, her health care. But the f- most famous line from the TED talk is every cell has a sex. Every cell has a sex. And it's by a cardiologist. And the cardiologist's concern is that uh, um, as a know as a, her, her concern is, how the, is heart attacks. And she said, the symptoms of an impending heart attack are different for women than for men. And most Doctors are only taught, you know, a lot of the research is done only in men. So, doctors are taught what to look for based on the, the male symptoms. So, a woman comes in and the doctor doesn't recognize the symptoms because he hasn't been trained to see them. He sends her home and she has a heart attack. So, that's the, you know, that's the theme of this TED talk. But as I went, as I, as I read the TED talk, uh, I went on, the, on YouTube to, read, to, to watch it. And underneath were all these comments saying, She's so transphobic <laughs> what she wasn't even talking about transgenderism. The very fact that she had acknowledged a male female binary meant she was transphobic. And, and I, I kept reading about, you know, I thought I, I got to find out what people are saying. Right. And finally, some wise person said, look, she's not transphobic. She's just saying that when you get sick and the doctors put you on the operating table, they need to know your original biological sex to give you the best medical care. Mm-hmm. So every cell has a sex, and that's what Brandon came to see. You can't change every sex, every cell in the human body. So surgery, surgery, and hormones don't do it. Um, so yeah, Brandon's in his early twenties now. But that's um, I give lots of stories like that to help people give people practical tips and how to uh, work with young people in your family, in your church, in your Christian school. Um, And and by the way, I give some um, uh, uh, academic academic studies. Academic studies have found that the most reliable predictor of non-heterosexual behavior, either uh, homosexuality or transgenderism, the most reliable predictor is not any genetic or biological cause. Most reliable predictor is simply non-conforming behavior in childhood, non-gender conforming behavior in childhood. In other words, kids who are acting like the opposite sex. That's it, that is the most, by far the most reliable predictor of kids who are going to end up uh, claiming a homosexual or transgender identity. And so what this means is, we can be on the lookout for these kids we can stand, get our, go out of our way to help and support them because they are going to be targeted. You can be absolutely certain they will be targeted by homosexual and transgender activists. And so a practical step we can take is to go out of our way to give extra support, love and affirmation to the kids who don't fit in and who are prone to feeling more like Brandon did, You know, I don't fit in anywhere I don't fit any of the stereotypes. So the church can be proactive in, in terms of uh, ministering to these young people
1: such an important point and I'm so glad that you pointed people to the stories that you write in your book because I think that's such a powerful way to help people understand on a really practical even emotional level of of how this affects people and I just want to urge everybody watching if you haven't dug into some of the what's called the detransition stories it's a growing movement of people who are coming out saying look and these and by the way these are not people who are against transgenderism typically you know in in they're they're actually for transgenderism transition in certain cases but in their particular cases their doctors didn't question when they wanted the sex change the doctors didn't offer didn't offer to try to find out what was going on in their psyche that might be leading them to change their body when that wouldn't be necessary and so there are lots of people who are coming out now saying you know my body is now per, per, permanently damaged and nobody, like this doctor that I know was trying to help me actually hurt me. And and they're being silenced. People won't listen to their stories. And, and they get, like Nancy, you mentioned in the comments, people are saying they're transphobic or this or that. But I think it's a it's a really important thing for people to dig into. one Another resource, as well as Love Thy Body, that really highlights this is in Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally. He devotes an entire chapter to the de- uh, transition stories. So I encourage people to check that out as well. Uh, but Nancy, in Love Thy Body, you give summaries of various thinkers throughout history from Freud to Sanger to Kinsey. Um, What do these thinkers all have in common? And how does that relate with where you think our culture is at when it comes to things like sex and gender?
2: Well, can I give a a really cool de-transitional story first? Yeah, you mentioned that. Uh, So here's one of my favorite stories. Um, There was a woman who um, successfully passed as a man for 10 years. Um, and then she converted to Christianity. And it was interesting because at first she didn't think that well, you know, sanctification takes some time. So at first she thought it was perfectly OK for her to remain living as a man. And she writes, um, I aspire to be a real man of God. Uh, and then one, day, then one day when she was praying, she seemed to hear God say to her, you cannot claim to love me and yet reject my creation. This creation being, you know, her body—that she was physically female—and so this is this is a the case we need to make: is that biblical morality is based on accepting who God made us. Um, that it, it, its not just loving God; it's loving His creation. Now she became a Christian. Um, this. I'll, I'll give you a second a story of a woman who didn't become a Christian, but who detransitioned. Because um, this shows you that even secular liberal people are starting to see through it. And again, this, both of these came out after my book was already published. So they're not in the book, um, but there was, a, there was a girl who uh, did an interview on, on the website that I mentioned, Fourth Wave Now. Um, she detransitioned at age 14. She had transitioned to a boy at age 11 and lived as a trans boy for three years before detransitioning and reclaiming her identity as a girl. And on the website, she said, the turning point came, and this is a direct quote, when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And I thought, whoa, I wish I'd had that (laughs) quote for a book titled Love Thy Body. So he was even a non-Christian recognizing that the key issue was, do you love your body? Um, you'll start to see this now, even in secular um, context. Secular people are starting to say, transgenderism equals body hatred, body hatred. So they're starting to recognize, you know, it's been three years since Love Thy Body came out and now even secular people are saying that core of the issue is, do you love your body? And uh, that transgenderism is about promoting body hatred. Um, yeah, in *Love My Body*, I talk. I have a chapter on uh, the hookup culture, and that's where I talk more about sort of the, the architects of the sexual revolution, like Freud and um, Kinsey and Margaret Sanger and others. And they're in a little bit different uh, philosophy from the people we've been talking about. Essentially, there's modernism and there's postmodernism, right? And I think one of the things that's been difficult for Christians in this issue is that most of our Christian apologists have been equipping us to answer the challenges from modernism. They've mostly been equipping us to answer questions from materialism, naturalism, you know, empiricism, rationalism. These are all modernist worldviews. They all claim to be based on science, um, whereas the issues of transgenderism and homosexuality are coming from postmodernism. And most of our Christian apologists have not been trained in postmodernism. And that's one reason that they haven't really sort of caught up with the Foucault and people like Foucault and Judith Butler who are coming from a very different perspective. These are completely postmodern. And here's the difference. People like Freud and Kinsey and Sanger were all still trying to explain the human body and human sexuality in modernist terms. You know, the human body was still just a, a machine, you know, Dawkins calls us a meat machine, Richard, Richard Dawkins. Um, but Kinsey, too. Kinsey said we're just a human animal. He talked about humans as just being part of the mammalian, the mammalian species, as he put it. Uh, and uh, Margaret Sanger, if you've ever, ever read any of her books, she was a sold-out Darwinist. and um, Her whole goal is to come up with a view of sexuality that would be compatible with it, based solely on Darwinism. So those thinkers were all very modernists. Um, and we have to have a somewhat different apologetic to them, as opposed to people like Foucault and Butler who say, who cares about the body? <laughs> we don't take our identity from our body. What counts is you know, the, the, when we talked at the beginning when we talked about the split between body and person, OK, so the modernists are still stuck with the body. Francis Schaeffer used the imagery of two stories in a building. And, and he wasn't the only one, there are a lot of philosophers who use that, that image, but modernism is in the lower story, where you care about science, and you reduce humans to just complex biochemical machines. Postmodernists are in the upper story where they care only about the, the person, not the body, but the person, so they care about the internal feelings and sense of self and your inner experiences. And they're making very different arguments, and I'm, one of the things, uh, one of the challenges, I think, for Christians is to realize you have to have different set of arguments for, for modernism as opposed to postmodernism. So the section in the book where I deal with um, the modernists um, is is the, uh, the um, chapter on the, on the hookup culture, which is still very much geared towards um, uh, yeah, as one. I quote several uh, several college students who say, "Um, sex is just a physical connection. One one student named Alyssa said, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body. You make yourself emotionally invulnerable. Or a, a drummer from Austin, Texas who said, Sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body that is existentially meaningless. So you see, these, guys, these are guys in the lower story They're, This is the modernist mindset uh, sex is just a bodily function. It's kind of like, I call it the Proverbs 31 view. Proverbs 31, is it, it, it says it's talking about the woman who's committed adultery. And it says she, it says she wipes her mouth and says, well, I've done nothing wrong. In other words, sex is just like a physical appetite. When you're hungry, you fulfill it, no big deal. It's no big deal for you sexuality. So many of, our, many of the architects of, our, of the sexual revolution are still in the modern, modernist mindset. And they're the people who try to say, uh, you know, like I said, sex is just a matter of, uh, it's, it's totally cut off it's from the rich inner life of the whole person. And so that takes a, a different apologetic. That says, that's, that says, you know, is do you really think sex is fulfilling if it's just physical? Nobody really wants sexuality to be purely physical. Everyone, being made in God's image, really is reaching up for some level of personal connection. And so our, our apologetic to the, that mindset is different. Um, but it's, a, it's it's very important because it's still very influential on our college campuses and so on. But that's when you ask me, what about, you know, Freud and Kinsey and Sanger? That's their mindset. And that's the apologetic we need to frame for them.
0: I think that's really helpful about hookup culture. That's a very powerful uh, way of thinking about it as, you know, another example of how we separate the physical body From, you know, the what our culture calls the authentic self. But you're making a point, Nancy, that I've been making for a while. And I'm so heartened to hear you say this because I I've had difficulty being persuading people that much of traditional apologetics is really responding to questions of modernism. And I think that there's a growing set of questions that's coming out of postmodernism that apologists are trying to catch up with um, and we need to do more work in in that area um, I'm wondering if we could go to a couple of uh, questions on the YouTube streams we've got one on the all the things stream from Darlene she says do you see the bioethicist views as a prelude to allowing abortion after a baby is born. Their definition, I'm thinking of personhood, leaves a lot of people in danger, including senior citizens.
2: A lot of these secular bioethicists are already arguing that. So some secular bioethicists think that the the fetus becomes human before birth, but there are some who argue that the fetus doesn't become human until after birth. Two of the most prominent Examples are Francis Crick and Crick and Watson, the two people who uh, who discovered the double helix structure of DNA. They're very famous scientists, and both of them said you should allow for, say, three days of genetic testing after birth. The idea being that some genetic defects don't show up until after birth. And so, only if the fetus passes those tests does it qualify as a person and you decide to allow it to live. Another prominent bioethicist is Peter Singer at Princeton University. So that tells you he's pretty prominent. Um, Peter Singer has said that even three years of age is a gray area. That's his words. It's a gray area because, after all, how much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? So you are absolutely right. Already, people are secular bioethicists have been arguing that birth should not be considered you know, the dividing line. And uh, and, and you talked about um, elderly people too. Yeah, um, if you, in in Love Thy Body, I do have a section on euthanasia because you're absolutely right. It's the same reasoning just applied in reverse. In other words, in abortion, you're human until you acquire certain cognitive functioning. But in euthanasia, if you lose certain cognitive functioning, then you are no longer a person and you would become merely human. You become merely a biological organism with no particular dignity or rights or, or moral status. Uh, as one bioethicist put it, you're only a body. <laughs> you're only a body. And at that point, your, your uh, food and water can be discontinued. Your medical treatment can be stopped. Your organs can be harvested. So, Already we are at the point where people are arguing for euthanasia based on the same reasoning, just in reverse. Instead of acquiring personhood, you've lost personhood. And so you are no longer a person. So that you are quite right. That's why the whole concept of personhood is so dangerous, is because technically anybody, ultimately anyone could be declared a non-person, right? I mean, in every culture across history, we've seen some people declared non-persons. And as soon as people are declared to be non-persons, they, became, they become fair game you know, for, for various kinds of uh, persecution and various kinds of uh, you know, uh, take, their rights taken away and so on. I mean, every, every culture has had that. But now it's just that now we have all these academics giving academic uh, support to the idea that, that you can be a human and still be a non-person. In fact, that's what they're calling it, human non-persons. Human non-persons is the label being used. So, yes, you could be a human non-person, in which case we've acknowledged that you're human,
0: but you don't have any rights. It seems like that extension, Joanne is asking kind of as a follow-up to that, that if personhood has prerequisites, then individuals who are maybe born handicapped possibly might not be considered persons either in some cases. It seems like that would be be a natural possibility there as well certainly especially mental handicap okay yeah. very good all right Alisa, do you have any questions from your channel
1: Yeah, I've got some comments. And then um, I'll I'll ask. There's a question here, too. But there's just this really sweet comment from Anna Flower. And she said, I socially detransitioned. I didn't have any surgeries. And that whole ordeal was still so psychologically damaging for me. I subconsciously wanted to escape my identity slash body because of trauma and she said I had rapid onset gender dysphoria and then this is where I think she's giving really good advice Here, she said therapists need to focus on body reconnection so so you know making the body line up with the mind rather than letting the mind lead what we do with the body and so I thought that was a a great comment from Anna Flower there um Nancy can I respond to that before you yes yeah yeah um thank you Anna. that's a that's a very good comment and
2: um One thing that I wanted, you know, we didn't talk about rapid onset gender dysphoria, and so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, One of the things, you know, there was a um, study done of rapid onset gender dysphoria at Brown University by Lisa Littman, and I thought the the most significant thing to come out of this study. It's the first study done of rapid onset gender dysphoria, but um, the most significant finding was that most people with rapid onset gender dysphoria, suffer additional mental health issues. Some of the most common are autism, anxiety, depression, ADHD, um, self-harm, like cutting, OCD, et cetera. The most reliable, uh, the most common is autism. Nobody quite knows why, but autism has been most reliably connected with uh, back, even back when it was called transsexualism. There's, for a long time, autism has been connected to transsexualism. But anyway, these teens already, um, let me see the uh, 63%, 63% of these teens had been diagnosed with at least one mental health disorder prior to the onset of their gender dysphoria. And let me emphasize the word diagnosed. Most teens do have some anxiety and depression. But these were teens whose issues were so severe that they had already received counseling and had been diagnosed. And so two two takeaways from that. Number one is it is really medical malpractice to simply uh, fast track these young people into transitioning without asking any questions about their medical or their mental health history. And yet that is is the most common pattern now. I I had a chance to uh, do an interview with several parents for an article that I wrote for The Federalist. And it was really amazing talking, you know, firsthand to these parents. And I got so many stories that went like this. My, my daughter went to see the gender clinic. They talked for 30 minutes and the gender clinician said, congratulations, you're a boy. Here's how to get testosterone. 30 minutes. That was very common, very typical. So number one, that, um, that's medical malpractice because these kids need a whole lot more. Number two, what does it mean for us? You know, um, this is not just an apologetic issue where we wanna argue the truth of the Christian worldview. This is where we need to realize these are very troubled kids and we need to have a ministry to them. When we have repentance, well, either one, either form of gender dysphoria in our churches and our Christian schools and our families, we need to realize these are already very troubled kids. From what I've talked to, to to teachers and counselors, they tend to be much more troubled. For example, than kids who suffer from same-sex attraction, much worse. Um, so we need to think about that when they show up in our in our lives. Is that we need to treat them with a lot of love and support, and, um, and not just treat this as a um, you know as an argument for a particular view of sexuality. So i wanted
1: to be sure and say that before we went on um yeah that's good and and that kind of leads us into this uh maybe this will be like the final question here uh, but this is from an account called i will not be shaken and i love how you mentioned you know we need to show love and empathy and support and all of that and the question is um so how do we recommend we deal with uh this is a specific question to this person how do you recommend that i deal with contention between my teammate who wants me to call her him. I said it's against the law of God and I won't go against him. Um, What's your advice on that? You know, when we're dealing in real life situations with people who are walking through this and they, they want us, you know, to use a certain pronoun or a name, or maybe there's a difference there. How would you go about uh, exploring that, that topic?
2: Of course, the best thing is if you can really build a relationship so that you give context, right? So um, we talked about how a lovely body has a lot of stories. And actually, this is one of my favorite as well. Um, it's the story, a story in the chapter on homosexuality. And it's a story about a young man named Sean, Sean Doherty, um, who says he was exclusively same-sex attracted and uh, all of his growing up years. But today he's married to a woman and has three kids. And by the way, he's also a Christian ethics professor <laughs> in London. Um, but here's the interesting thing about his story. He grew up in a gay affirming family and attended a gay affirming church. So he felt like there was nothing wrong with being homosexual. Uh, he, he, he was not driven by any sense of guilt or shame. And so you say, well, why did he change then? He said, "I def- I, decided to def- I decided to stop defining myself by my sexual feelings and instead to define myself by my body. After all, our feelings can change, and sometimes do. But your body is an empirical, knowable fact. It's scientifically knowable. It doesn't change. It makes a lot more sense to base your sexual identity on your body. And so he says, I decided to acknowledge what I already had. Instead of trying to change my feelings, I decided to acknowledge what I already had which was a male body, as a good gift from God. And then my feelings started to follow suit. So that is really the question at the core of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind material causes or a cosmos created by a loving creator, which is therefore intrinsically good. And therefore I should be treating my body as intrinsically good. And see, here's where we need time to talk to our friends Um, as opposed to just saying, well, you know, yes or no, right or wrong. We want to say, well, the Christian ethic is based on on the conviction that your body is a good gift from God and that he wants you to affirm your body as part of your identity. He does not want to see you fragmented, fractured, divided between your body and your mind. You know, the question is, if your mind and your body are, uh, are in contradiction to each other, which one do you go with? Well, your body is the one that actually is doesn't change. There's, um, there's a s- statistic here that um, you should memorize. <laughs> we should all memorize. Uh, Lisa, Di- Lisa Diamond is a senior researcher with the American Psychological Association. And she was a person who first discovered that sexual identity is sometimes fluid. You know, can you hear the, top, the concept a lot now, sexuality being fluid. Well, all that came out of Lisa Diamond. She was the one who first started uh, asking people, okay, you identify as lesbian or gay. What was the last time you had uh, an attraction to the opposite sex? And she was discovered that for many people last week, it was last month, you know, that many people who had come out as, as uh, non-heterosexual actually had a lot of heterosexual feelings still. And that's why she came up with the notion of fluidity. So here's the, stati- here's the statistic. Of people who come out as non-heterosexual, 80%, 80% change their sexual identity label at least once. At least once, which means sometimes it's more. 80% who come out as non-heterosexual change their sexual identity label at least once. What that means is, yes, your feelings definitely do change, your body doesn't. But even among non-heterosexuals, their feelings do change. And so it is rational to say, well, maybe, maybe I should take a second look and think more about how how does my body form my identity? And should I maybe be giving greater emphasis to my body as something that's good and something that I should value? And and maybe I should investigate why I feel uncomfortable with my body. Maybe there's some psychological reasons for that. And the but the message, the overwhelming message, should be: the Christian ethic is based on valuing your body, your physical identity, living in harmony with who God made you. You want the time to talk to somebody to where you can give that context. That is the reason for the Christian ethic. That's the only way you're going to win people over, but that will win people over. A Positive message like that, your body, you know, we live in a cosmos created by a loving God and our body is therefore intrinsically good. Nobody else is telling them that. So the Christian view, you know, if we rephrase our language so that it's positive and, and uh, affirming like that, I think
0: then we'll get a hearing in a postmodern world. That's so helpful. I'm thinking about your piece there about, you know, what Monique and I often call our creation identity, that part of the way that God has created us, he's created us in his image. He's created us to rule and reign over the creation. It's also made us male or female. And that is something that God has put in us from the beginning. And And that's the thing that we can look to, to say this is how God made me. My emotions might change, cultural message, messages might be pressuring me, but I can always kind of come back to all right, what is God's created design for me? What is is his plan and purpose? And then ask him for help to bring my emotions, my thoughts, my practices into alignment with what he's created. That's kind of what I hear you saying as the Christian answer to, to these issues. Yes, that's a good, that's a good
2: paraphrase. Exactly, um, and here's, here's, here's what I found. You know, I speak a lot of churches and Christian schools and colleges, and I was a little surprised to find out how much I have to, how much I have to emphasize this, <laughs> that just changing your language is an a big hurdle for a lot of people. Do you remember I said one of my students that she grew up always hearing body, spirit good, body bad. It's very hard. The message that we're known for, okay, the message Christians are known for is, it's wrong, it's a sin, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you. Right. That's the message we're known for. And I have found that in the audiences that I speak to, the first and hardest thing for them to do is to start changing their language to where they talk to somebody saying, uh, "Your body is good. Your body is a gift from God." So after one talk, for example, a young a teenage boy came up and said, well, "How do I talk to my friend who who says she's a lesbian now?" And I, and I said, "You know, just start talking about how she, you know the way she's experienced a contradiction between her feelings and her body. You know, does so she, so she really want to live with that sort of dichotomy, that sort of fragmented inner life?" You know, God doesn't want her to have that sort of fragmentation. God wants us to have wholeness and integration and, uh, and living, live, living in harmony with who he created us to be. So just changing the language when you're talking to your friends and, you know, he's just a teenage boy, you know, uh, just change your language in the very way you, you talk about it. I have found for many people, that's the biggest hurdle for them to get over
0: Very good. Well, thank you, Nancy, for being with us. Thank you for doing this. Alisa, do you have any final
1: words for Nancy? No, just thank you so much. This was such a, a joy to get to talk with you and uh, just so appreciative of your work and your book. And everybody needs to go follow Nancy on Twitter and on uh, social media and get the book, Love Thy Body. And uh, I, I think it's going to really enrich your understanding of some of these topics. So definitely go pick up those books. And Nancy, thank you so much. It's uh, It was really a joy to get to talk to you. And I look forward to, hearing, to, to seeing your new book as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's about to go into editing. So, you know, who knows? Maybe it's a big mess. We'll find out in a minute.
2: (laughs) I've seen some of you writing. It's not going to be a
0: big mess. It's going to be good.
1: Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Nancy.
0: This has just been such an honor to be able to talk to uh, a pioneer in apologetics. And thank you for all of your work that you've done over the decades. Um, Just thanks for being with us and bringing your wisdom. I know based on the comments that you've really been an encouragement to a lot of people and helped, helped us think this through. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's a good interview. I always appreciate thoughtful, thoughtful questions. And you guys, you guys did have really good, thoughtful, penetrating questions. And so
0: it was a lot of fun. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much. Good Good night. All right, Elisa. Yes. What fun. Look, yes. what, look what we got to do. We got to interview a living legend.
1: Yeah. I, yeah.
0: I, didn't, I didn't want to completely embarrass Nancy, but like, I remember when I was in seminary in a long time ago, you know, there really weren't any women apologists who were out there, you know, that there, I was the only woman in my theology program at my seminary. And I remember in the mid nineties coming across Nancy's stuff. And I was like, Oh my word. There's some other woman who's like me and likes these nerdy topics and and is is biblically conservative. Um, What an encouragement she has been to me. Um, Just she she I'm sure has no knowledge of that, but just it's it's such an encouragement to know that that she's out there and has been working so long.
1: Well, and one of my favorite books of all time. Now, I loved Love Thy Body, and I recommended that to everybody. And like I said, I got it on all three platforms. But possibly one of my favorite books ever is a book Nancy wrote called Saving Leonardo, A Call to Resist the Secular Assault on Mind, Morals, and Meaning. Uh, I, I have just about every page of that book. There's a highlight of just it is so quotable. And it's a, it's just like she, she goes through the art history and shows how the philosophies of the time influenced what was going on. But at the same time, it's like she's just taking down theological liberalism and all of this uh, false ideologies. And anyway, that's a great one. If anyone's watching, Saving Leonardo, one of my favorite books of all time.
0: Yeah, and, and she borrows a lot from um, Francis Schaeffer's ideas and I heard her say in one interview that she actually became a Christian at Labrie, mm-hmm. which was uh, Francis Schaeffer's ministry in Switzerland to to students, and uh, that that was how she came to faith. But I believe she also worked with Chuck Colson um, on doing some doing some projects, co-authored a book with him. So, just really an amazing woman. Um, so we want to encourage people to go interact with her content and and her books and ideas. She's an important voice out there and um, doesn't do a ton of media appearances. So it's just really honored to to have her on and be able to talk to us tonight.
1: Yeah, and we we need to credit Monique. Monique is the one who secured the interview. Yeah. And she didn't even get to be here. We're just sort of riding along. <laughs> yeah, we're grateful though.
0: Thanks yeah. <laughs> Look what we got to do. So, yeah. well, thank you for doing this with me tonight. It's been fun and being able to do a stream together and um, we will see you soon and we look forward to hearing more about your book as it continues to develop. So.
1: All right. Well, All right. always. Thanks so much for letting me, let me jump in on this. Yeah. It's been fun. All right, my
0: friends, that is it for this week. Uh, we are dark next week because Monique will be speaking at the reality tour, which Monique or uh, which Elisa spoke out last year um so monique's gonna be on the reality tour so make a way out of no way if you live in southern california get your kids to the stand to reason conference the reality tour um next
1: friday and saturday night can't miss it that's right elisa it's a great conference it's so fun, and I was so bummed because the year that I got to do it was like COVID, the COVID year. <laughs> so, almost all of it. I think we got to do two of the events, and it was just so much fun. All the and I'm just this year. There's there's Beckett Cook, there's Monique. It's a great lineup this year. So definitely, I mean, it's it's geared toward teenagers. So definitely get your teens there. But you know, I mean, I I will admit that I went to the reality conference as an adult a few years ago just to go to the conference so you know i think you can can do that you know if you want to it's really a great great apologetics conference
0: yeah it it is a one of a kind but it's an absolute must if you're like within i don't know 70 to 100 miles get there get a hotel Mm -hmm. you know find a friend (laughs) take their kids to you know uh figure it out because it's just not to be missed. So thanks, everyone. Have a good week and good night. Thanks for listening to All the Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows.